The Garden Question is a podcast for people that love designing, building, and growing smarter gardens that work. Listen in as we talk with successful garden designers, builders, and growers, discovering their stories along with how they think, work, and grow. This is your next step in creating a beautiful, year-round, environmentally connected, low-maintenance, and healthy, thriving outdoor space. It doesn't matter if you're a beginner or an expert, there will always be something inspiring when you listen to the Garden Question podcast. Hello, I'm your host, Craig McManus. At Stonely, Ethan Kaufman is introducing biodiversity to a formal garden using sound design reasoning and creative native plants for formal hedges, knot gardens, and other formal elements. He is always looking to fill a function and not just an expectation of what a plant should be. Ethan developed his love of the natural world by exploring the Susquehanna River Hills in southeastern Pennsylvania. He cultivated his horticultural perspective over two decades of gardening in the Deep South, including as director of Moore Farms Botanical Garden. There he led a transition from a private pleasure garden to a public botanical garden. Drawing on influences from both regions, he currently serves as Natural Lands First Director of Stonely, a natural garden. A 42-acre former estate located in Villanova, Pennsylvania that opened to the public in 2018. There he creates a garden experience that inspires others to garden for beauty, diversity, and the health of our planet. This is episode 91, Introducing Biodiversity to a Formal Garden, with Ethan Kaufman on the Garden Question Podcast. You're invited to engage with us on Instagram at the Garden Question Podcast. If you'd like to email me directly, the address is question at thegardenquestion.com. That's question at thegardenquestion.com. Please remember, your ratings and reviews are always appreciated. Ethan, for six years, you have been transitioning a historic formal landscape to a biodiverse natural garden. Would you introduce us to Stonely? I'd love to. Stonely is a 42-acre former private estate located in Villanova, Pennsylvania. About six years ago, this former private estate was donated to Natural Lands. Natural Lands is a land conservation organization, one of the largest in the region, we were tasked with taking this really incredible and amazing property that was designed in large part by the Olmsted brothers over a period of 50 years. Picture big expanses of turf, huge old trees. We have numerous trees that are 100 or 150 years old, a lot of big oaks, white pines, and they sort of frame a lot of the space. So you have these long views up this small hill, and on the top sits a very to me, it's a large house. It's 17,000 square feet, and we call it the main house. It sits at the top of the property, built in about 1900. It's all stone. We are able to work in this gorgeous place and transition it to a public garden. It's 2023. We're thinking about our landscapes in a much different way than did at the turn of last century. How we can create more sustainable landscapes, how we can create landscapes that are biodiverse, support our local wildlife, and of course, we want to connect with our community and with guests that come through are inspired and hopefully find meaning in being in this beautiful garden space. The garden is owned by the Natural Lands Trust. Could you explain to us what that is? Yeah, it's a, a land conservation organization. And before I came up here to work in this job, I really didn't know what that meant because I lived in South Carolina and 
there's still a pretty good amount of open space down there. But when you come to a densely populated area like southeastern Pennsylvania, you realize pretty quickly that it's built up and there's just not a lot of green space. Organizations like Natural Lands conserve this space. They conserve open space. In our case, we not only conserve this open space, but we actually own and operate 43 nature preserves in eastern Pennsylvania and southern New Jersey. And they're some of the most spectacular landscapes in the entire region. They're free and open to the public. Not only do we conserve space, but we steward this land that we offer to the public. Then we're really interested in connecting everyone to nature and the outdoors. That's what we do in a nutshell. And of course, Stonely is our first public garden. Where did you start on reimagining the historic Olmstead Brothers' formal design into a natural garden? That's a great question. You come into a place like that, we didn't see a lot of perennials or herbaceous plants. It was all turf and trees. If you love gardens like we do and you love gardening and designing, you just see all these possibilities. We also wanted to be a little sensitive to the designers that came before us, of course. We decided early on that we didn't want to redesign this place in the same vein as the Olmsted Brothers. We didn't want to look at their plans and do exactly what they did, kind of like building a model airplane. We wanted to think about what it means today to create a garden and how that garden can be beneficial to humans and animals and inspire others to do the same. We really focus on native plants. That's sort of the cornerstone of that. We also think about stormwater mitigation, reduced pesticide application, reducing our energy inputs into the garden, erosion control, and all the other important things. I don't know that people were really thinking about a lot of that 100 years ago. We made the decision not to follow exactly in their footsteps, but preserve all the amazing hardscapes that they created. The overall feel of the garden remains, but it's just a modern interpretation, especially the diversity of native plantings that we've added and the creativity and energy that we're bringing to the garden. When you got there six years ago, with this mission of biodiversity into a formal landscape, what were your first thoughts? My first thoughts were, we have a lot of Pakistandra orientalis here, a lot of ivy, a lot of things that aren't exactly beneficial. We had 14 acres of turf to mow at Stonely. Turf is better than asphalt, but for stormwater mitigation, it's not great. It's a monoculture, so it doesn't support wildlife in a way that we would like. Some of the kind of low-hanging fruit, you might call, we're removing some of this pachysandra in the beginning, also allowing about half our turf areas to grow along into sort of like a meadow-type environment. Not only does it look beautiful, but also as soon as we did that, we saw birds flying in there and foxes jumping around, insects pollinating the things that were in flower, sort of a first step. Then we just looked at the areas in terms of what were maybe the most important from the guest experience perspective. We need a parking lot, of course. We put that in. We had to landscape that around the main house was sort of a focal point. That was also one of the first landscapes that we put in. So we tried to really think about what would be the most impactful first and work out from there. Where was the first time you put shovel in the ground around the house and what was the project you were accomplishing? We call it the sun terrace. It's sort of the backside of the house that looks across the great lawn, which is this huge expanse of turf that goes down into a copse of trees. We were really kind of scrambling because we took a year and a half to open this garden to transition, which is far too short. It was crazy. We had 70 contractors on site every day for that year and a half. They put in sewer lines, a mile and a half of pathways, and several new buildings. It was crazy. We were trying to meet a deadline, and we did this landscape in the back of the house. We were a bunch of plants. I wouldn't say that we had a great plan in our minds. We did that place, but it looked good for the opening since, of course, <laughs> redone it. And now we do sometimes you install gardens, and then two years later, you redo them. That's what we did. <laughs> what is your current project? What are you trying to accomplish now in the garden? What we're trying to do now, since we took on 42 acres at once that hadn't been maintained in about four years, 
sort of a more traditional style of gardening. So there are a lot of beds with just open space. That open mulch area, either you spray it or you hand weed it. We have a small team. There are eight full-time staff. We just didn't have the person power to really hand weed everything. And we sure as heck didn't want to spray Roundup or glyphosate everywhere. We've been sort of systematically either planting these bare areas first. You get plant coverage. You're smothering out weeds. You're creating layers, creating more dynamic visual effect. I mentioned we had all this turf, but we are turning some of it back into turf because it's sort of the lesser of two challenges. Rather have turf there than have to spray or use a lot of person power to weed. Aside from that, we just installed a really neat water garden last fall. It was fantastic. It's about 50 feet long, 18 feet wide, and it's filled with a lot of interesting aquatic plants. But one of the best parts about it is it's biofiltrated, so no chemicals are used in it. It's really been a really wonderful centerpiece and the first really big garden addition we've done in the last year. Are you seeing that's attracting more wildlife? Oh, absolutely. Yeah, that's one of the best ways you can encourage more wildlife is to implement a new habitat, especially something like water. Stonely was kind of notable. It didn't have any water feature. We knew this was a really good opportunity for us not only to add that extra dimension. As soon as we put it in, we saw birds in there bathing, and we've seen lots of aquatic insects. There are water striders all over the surface, dragonfly larvae, damselflies, and I haven't seen any frogs in there yet, but I know they're coming. We get really excited about seeing wildlife in the garden, and we actually document it all, and we keep a spreadsheet of all the different animals that we see. Because if you're starting a place like this from the beginning, where it was maintained as more sterile landscape, where it was just turf and trees and a lot of diversity, we want to get a baseline. Five years from now, what have these changes we've implemented in the landscape done for our local ecology? That's why we're collecting a lot of information on the wildlife right now. I know you've got a lot of plant knowledge there, but how about the wildlife knowledge? How do you transition what attracts the wildlife to the garden? We're finding out as gardeners and public landscape managers, at least I am, and we are, where we're gardening, is that it's no longer really sufficient just to know about plants and horticulture. It's a more holistic approach, and we have to understand how these plants interact with our local ecology. We're lucky to have some staff members on the team who are really good with the natural side of gardening. One of them, Sam Nestor, she's my coworker, and she has a background in entomology and really informs a lot of decisions on plants based on what might be a host plant for a specialist insect or what might be a great overall pollinator plant like our asters and goldenrods for perennials are really great for generalist pollinators. That information sort of spreads to the rest of the team, and also we're lucky. We have such a wonderful staff. When you find in public horticulture, people are really passionate about what they do. And so everybody wants to learn more and sort of reads at home about these relationships with insects and, and animals and how we can better support them in the garden. you got eight people for 42 acres. That sounds rather challenging. Do you have any shortcuts or special tricks that you do to maintain that? Actually, it's not even eight. It's more like a couple of those folks. We have an engagement manager and a facilities manager and myself. So it's really five full time for the 42 acres. I think just cutting back on those things that are taking time. We contract out our turf, so we don't do that ourselves because you want your horticulturist to have specialized skills to work on things that require a little more sophistication than turf. We also contract out our arboriculture. We take it one area at a time. We renovate an area and you kind of have that three-year period where your perennials are really growing in. You're still weeding a lot in between the plants, but after a couple of years, if you're planting it right, you're covering the landscape. The maintenance becomes a little bit less. And so we've just taken it area by area like that. The heaviest lifting was in the beginning, the first couple of years. And now as we sort of renovating these areas and installing new beds, it's actually getting a little bit better. Oh, and we have an amazing group of volunteers. How could I forget them? That's the real way that we do it. They come several times a week and are the backbone and the heart and soul of what we do. 
You said you got rid of a lot of Pachysandra. Are you covering it back with vines? I know you mentioned some other things that you were seeding and turf and stuff like that, but do you use vines? Good question about the Pachysandra because we often ask ourselves that. We're like, if you remove something like I have your Pachysandra, you're sort of now having bare soil. Nobody likes bare soil because then you have weeds coming in and all kinds of other challenges. We do try to be strategic. When we pull something like that out, we do come back in and make sure we plant over top of it. Could be bunch grasses. It could be vines. We use a lot of vines in the garden. We use Virginia creeper as a ground cover. It really works well in three seasons. It will cover an entire area. Maybe it's not a forever plant in that space, but it's a weed suppressor and something that can sort of be a placeholder until you get another idea or the funding or the staff to do it. Well, what are some of your more interesting vines that you do use? We grow probably over 100 taxa of native vines. I don't know about interesting, but my favorite, or I think our best native vine, is Lonicera sempervirens, woodbine or coral honeysuckle. It's familiar to most of us, but it really is not just one of the best native vines, but one of the best vines, period. We have about 25 different varieties of that that we grow. Most of them are very minute differences in red, but we do have an orange that's wonderful and a couple yellows. We often use all three of those colors together to have fun. We also grow the native hops. Most people don't realize that there is an American hops. When it gets the fruit in the fall and you kind of crush it, it smells just like hops that you make beer with. That's really interesting. We grow lots of different wisteria. Just like you would use a vine as a vertical accent, you can use them in different ways too. So wisteria, we take our native wisteria and in our parking lot, we've trained them as shrubs. Especially in the South, you'd see, I lived there for 20 years and I used to always see the wisteria chinensis in the front yards. <laughs> in fact, I even had one of those at the house I bought where they trained them in shrubs. But we're doing that with the native species and it's, it's pretty cool. We grow the native salastris, which is American bittersweet. We have a variety called Autumn Revolution. So normally this plant takes a male and female to produce the beautiful fruit, but this variety is self-pollinating. So you get that fruit without having the two parents. So lots of really cool vines. Oh, and Clematis. Oh my gosh, we have so many really interesting Clematis. Clematis has such a light profile, except for Virginiana, which get a little more robust. But a lot of the other ones are perfect for planting on shrubs, mm -hmm. especially evergreens like conifers and other things, because their flowers really stand out against the needles. They won't overpower and shade them out. So we use them a lot to plant in other shrubs. We also use vines in trees. I want to see Virginia creeper growing up every pine tree because the fall color, especially in the north, the fall color is really incredible. In the south, it's not as striking, but up here, it really is amazing. We use vines to cover, to soften on walls, like trumpet creeper. Oh my gosh. If Lonicera sempervirens is the showiest or the best native vine, then trumpet creeper has got to be right up there. It's semi-evergreen up here, of course, evergreen in the south, but it gets those beautiful, beautiful, huge flowers. And it's in the bignonia family. When you see them both flowering, it totally makes sense. We have that on what we call our main house. We want to really soften those gray walls and add this explosion of orange color. Trumpet creeper really has the beautiful orange. And we have yellow varieties as well. And we even have a variegated one. Crazy for vines. I couldn't even imagine that there were 25 different trumpet vines. I'm a sick puppy when it comes to plants. And I just, uh, <laughs> I love to get new ones. And it's fun. Believe it or not, we have... This is going to sound kind of crazy too, but we have 75 and counting Arborvitae varieties. Whoa. Six years. <laughs> yeah. Whoa. <laughs> Sounds like you're a collector. Yeah, I, I am a collector, but I think also what we've noticed with especially native plants is something like Arborvitae, which there's a reason why it's popular. It's easy to grow. It tolerates lots of different conditions. It's evergreen. You typically don't have to shear it or do anything else to it, but just plant it. When you look at all these different varieties, 
Arbovitae really has a lot of diversity within that species in terms of what's on the market. You have tiny little bowling ball looking plants. You have really narrow. There's one that came out now called Sting, supposedly the most narrow variety, like two feet or a foot and 20 feet tall. I just ordered three, by the way. (laughs) That's pretty exciting. (laughs) I always get things in three too, because for design reasons and also if you're building collections, you don't want to just have one because if that dies, that's out of your collection. So we like to have at least two or three or more of something. These Arborvitae offer all these different forms. They're variegated, they're yellow, and we want to take native plants and really get people excited about them to use them in different ways and ways that sort of fit all these other needs in the garden itself. How do you take all these different varieties and use them in the garden? You just don't line them up and say, and put a sign in front of them, I know. How do you apply that to the garden? Sort of the old school approach, I remember, you might have a boxwood collection and it would all be in one place. And there's value to that because you can directly compare and contrast all these different forms together. Our collections are sort of integrated throughout the garden. Actually, we usually don't want to have too many of the same species or even genus in the same area. So we do try and spread them all out. Like we don't want to have five different arborvitae in the same garden space. We may have something like Juniperus virginiana, Eastern Red Cedar. Maybe there are two of those in a garden space, but they're usually much different in form. One might be almost prostrate, like gray owl, and then one might be very vertical, like Taylor. We do try to spread out these different plants and not have them all in the same area and just sort of use them as their function permits. Now, over 42 acres, how do you remember where they are? Uh, We do our best. We're lucky to have a database that we track all these plants in. We use what's called IrisBG. It's specifically designed for public gardens, and we have a plant recorder. Their name is Emily, and they do a great job. They enter all the information into the database every time something comes in, every time it's moved, when it dies. We like to say we track plants from the cradle to the grave. They're all in there, and they're all tracked with the session tags, you know, the little dog tags almost that are with each plant. Tell us about some of your fun and creative projects at Stoneley. We love to use native plants in a way that can oftentimes be formal or creative. I think one of the big myths about native plants is that they're messy or you might read up on a species, oh, this one is suitable for meadows and woodlands. Like I always read that. And even now you go to a lot of gardens and they have their quote unquote native plant garden. It's a woodland or it's a meadow or it's an informal area. So what we're doing is we're using these plants around this grand old estate that definitely had boxwood hedges and roses and knot gardens and that sort of traditional planting. We're taking native plants and we're using them in this elevated space with the same design principles that people would use in other sophisticated gardens and creating what I think are interesting elements. We use woody plants with a lot of structure. We're spalling red buds and um, Acer Nagundo, which can be a weedy thing, but we have a really neat variety that in the winter, the leaves fall off. It's on this old stone garage, and when the leaves fall off, the trunk and the stems turn this really bright, bright yellow. It's really neat. It's called white lightning. Is a variety of this box elder. We're using woody plants in structural ways. We've created a lot of hedges. We hedge things like magnolia grandiflora, teddy bear, which is a dwarf. We're also creating hedges that are really diverse, and we have what we call the wildlife hedge. It's about 200 feet long. We have about 70 different varieties of woody plants mixed all throughout this hedge. 
We're going to shear it at about eight feet tall and let everything kind of grow together in this really dynamic blend that I think is visually striking, but also it's more resilient when we have different varieties of plants. Disease does not wipe out the entire block. Probably best of all, it benefits a much broader array of wildlife. If we're talking hedges, like we like to use really sort of esoteric plants that you might not even see cultivated often and you use them in a formal way, or we use plants that are roadside weeds, baccarus, halimifolia, saltbush. You see that along I-95 here near Philadelphia, and we've taken it and created a hedge out of it using plants that might be humble or overlooked and using them in ways that are formal or more elevated than what you'd see in their natural environment. When I think formal, I think a lot of straight lines. You said you were pruning it at eight foot high. So does that bring the formal elements back into the hedge or letting the sides grow natural so you don't get a lot of density? How does that work? That's a good observation. You're exactly right. So this is a sheared on the sides and the top. So not in a formal form, mm-hmm. but a very informal composition, I think we would say. Hedges are important because they create boundaries, they delineate new spaces, and they do add a design intent. We do have a lot of different hedges that we brought to Stonely. One thing that I'm really excited to keep expanding on are herbaceous hedges. We don't often use herbaceous plants as hedge plants. We've been working with different perennials, typically robust perennials that can shear, like helianthus sunflowers. One of my favorites is <laughs> what people think is a kind of a weedy thing up here is snake root, Adriatina altissima. It actually makes a wonderful hedge. We tend to be conditioned to think of plants in these very traditional ways. We don't often think outside of what we've seen. I remember my wife and I took a trip. We love to travel all over the place. We were in Java. We were visiting this famous temple called Prambanam. It's a Hindu temple, this grand complex, and you're walking around like, oh my gosh, these temples are amazing. And, and then I look over, I notice this planting, because you know, you're probably like me. Everywhere you go, you're looking at plantings and landscapes. Oh, yeah. So I look over and I see this green planting. I was like, oh my gosh, what is this? This long, several hundred linear feet of hedge, about three feet tall. And I said to my wife, what is that? She doesn't love gardens like I do. She's like, I don't know. And I was all excited. So I ran over and I was like, oh my gosh, I took my hands and I rubbed them together and on this plant and it was dog fennel, which in the Southeast, of course, is a very aggressive opportunistic plant. And they had hedged it in Indonesia. I thought it was the coolest thing. I always try to think of plants in ways, not just in what you think, oh, well, holly should be a hedge or this tree should grow to a hundred feet tall and you shouldn't coppice it. But we're always trying to think of ways to treat plants differently and fulfill a function rather than an expectation of what that species should be. No one would ever think to, well, somebody did, a hedge dog fennel. It's really cool. I love that kind of stuff. Yeah, yeah. Of course, over there, it's evergreen because the frost doesn't hit it. So that, that helps. Well, I would like for you to take the things you've learned there at Stonely and apply it to residential property. And maybe you have a property in mind that you've done this, or maybe you can imagine a property and just describe what your thought process is in transitioning traditional garden or formal garden into more of a a wildlife-friendly natural garden. It's something thing about a lot just driving around. First of all, I love home gardens much more than commercial landscape because see a lot of that personal expression that comes out from home gardeners and it's not so sterile. And they're just gardening for themselves. Home gardens in a way are much easier because they can do whatever they want. One of the things I would do right away is get rid of a lot of turf. That's one of the easiest and best things you can do is just eliminate turf and plant herbaceous plants, plant shrubs, and especially native plants. That's kind of the key backbone of it all. Removing turf, planting native plants, introducing new habitats if you can. By that, I mean, could be a ball garden, could be a little water garden, could be a meadow. You also want to create places where young animals can nest. 
things like hollies where birds can create nests and they're protective and they can nurture them. Vines are another great thing to introduce because it creates a vertical sort of pathway up trees for wildlife. I've been talking about hedges in terms of what they look like in the garden or their function, but for wildlife, in addition to the food, hedges, they create protective pathways to and from other spaces. So if you're a, a vole or a mouse, you can travel underneath a hedge and a hawk or an owl is not going to be able to swoop in and get you as easily. Hedges create and vines create wildlife corridors. Definitely, if you can, planting oak trees because support the greatest diversity of caterpillars, which is the foundation of our food web. If you have the space or if you can select a smaller variety of oak, adding oaks in, adding pines, adding willows, adding cherries, those are all really plants that support a great array of caterpillars. Then pollinator plants, which are really popular. And I think sometimes we forget about host plants, which we need to plant to support the caterpillars that then turn into butterflies and pollinate these things using sort of the whole broad array of spectrum. And for us, like at Stonely, it's all about diversity. We want to have lots of different species, not only those species that support a general insect population or animals, you need to plant things for specialists as well so that those few plants might be what's required to support one variety of insects. Had this big pergola at Stonely and we planted pipe vine on it. As soon as we planted pipe vine on it, we had pipe vine caterpillars. It's really the only plant that that species feeds on. Without it, you're not going to have it. So you have to think about not just the generalists, but also specialist insects too. This is something I've always wondered about. You were mentioning hollies are great for and I know there's some natural hollies, but we've introduced a lot of hollies to our landscapes, and they tend to be densely sheared. Is that a negative? Do we want to be more natural form than densely sheared? Or the same vein is we talk about turf not really bringing a whole lot to the landscape as far as wildlife, but if we let it grow and be more of the meadow effect, the question is, can we just maintain our plants different and draw wildlife in on some things? I think it's all interrelated. The best thing to do is plant native plants. I think that's the main thing. I love non-native species too, and we have non-native plants at Stonely that were existing in place before we got there. If they're not invasive, if they're not bringing in diseases, then of course we lovingly steward them as well. But if you're introducing new plants into your landscape, you really should consider natives because they are the ones that support our local wildlife maintenance is important. It really is. I mean, if you're using a blower to blow off your pathways and you're scaring birds out of their nests in spring, or you're creating all kinds of pollution or noise pollution as well, we should think about just easing back a little bit on the level of maintenance that we do. And, you know, maybe just allow our landscapes to get a little bit more wild, a little bit more messy, and just sort of allow us to be more relaxed and let things mingle and collide, kind of create that romantic garden is a little bit wild, a little bit unexpected. Certainly by pruning things, you're reducing that a little bit, but you also need to prune things so you can create those contrasts so that it does look intentional and it does look cared for. Shearing hollies, I don't think is necessarily that bad for wildlife because it creates a dense growth that birds like to nest or, or at least seek shelter inside those places. It's like a whole combination of how we're maintaining. We don't want to use a lot of water either. I know in the Southeast, it's tough because where I gardened, it would get 95 degrees plus regularly in the summer and perennials often just really struggled in October, September. We want to plant a kind of a, you might say it's trite phrase now, but the right plant in the right place. You don't want to plant something that requires a lot of water if you don't have the resources or if using the resources will be deleterious to your ecosystem. What do you wish people would do differently when designing, building, or growing a garden or landscape? 
I like home gardens a lot because you see a lot of personal expression and you see a lot of things that <laughs> sometimes don't make sense, but I like that a lot. When you see cultural things like in South Carolina, in the country, you'd see a lot of catalpa trees that are pilarded. They collect the worms for fishing bait. I love seeing that. I think what bugs me about our commercial landscapes oftentimes, and I just wish people would be a little more daring, use more varieties of plants. There's a lot of cookie cutter work going on out there mulch deserts where you just have shrubs and there may be three levels to the landscape. There might be shrub perennial and annual. Got two feet of space between every plant and sterile mulch in between that's being sprayed all the time. I just like to see a little more creativity, plants covering everything, a little more wild, a little less fussy. What's a garden myth you'd like to smash? I think if you've ever managed a meadow, you realize just how much work it is. But I think to a layperson or somebody who might not be as familiar, people think meadows are this easy solution. You install them and they sort of take care of themselves because they are so wild. It's like, woohoo, they just grow. But in reality, meadows take a lot of work because they're places where invasive species can really come in and become established. And it's not just invasive species or non-native species, but aggressive native species like goldenrod or sorgastrum can just dominate a meadow in a matter of years. There is a lot of maintenance that has to happen in meadows. Another one that I think about sometimes are tree rings. And I'm not talking about like the volcano mulching that happens. We all know that's not good. The idea that we need a huge tree ring around every tree, it's not really the case. So for young trees, sure, while they're establishing a small tree ring can be helpful. We have many, many trees at Stonely and, and all over where I live and everywhere that don't have tree rings and they grow in the forest without tree rings. We recommend either planting underneath your tree, creating beds underneath them. A lot of caterpillars make cocoons in the trees. They fall down and they pupate underneath the tree itself. Raking your leaves is underneath the trees, which of course we know is a no-brainer. And then creating beds allows for wildlife to function as it should. If you don't want to create a bed, if you don't have the time, a lot of places we just let the turf grow long. It's a 10-foot radius around the tree, and it kind of looks like a little mini meadow under the tree, just so the mowers don't hit it. It's kind of a nice aesthetic. When you do these big, huge tree rings, it's like you're creating open space that has to be sprayed with glyphosate or hand-weeded, both of which are we'd rather be doing more sophisticated or relevant gardening. We don't want to spray glyphosate. Those are a couple things to think about <laughs> off the top of my head. What is your earliest garden memory? I think I was in first or second grade. Both my mom and dad loved to garden. I said I grew up in a row house, so she had this little teeny hosted size front yard bed. It was probably 20 by 10. I remember going to the nursery with her first grade. She let me pick out a plant and it was a bleeding heart. I just thought it was the coolest flower. Took it home. We planted it together. That's my first memory and it's a nice one. Why did you decide to pursue horticulture as a profession? I think like a lot of folks, I came to it accidentally. I never, ever thought I would have been in public horticulture when I was 20, 21 years old. I was a biology major and I wanted to work with animals. I was up in Pennsylvania. I graduated from Clemson. I was living at home <laughs> and kind of clueless as to what I was going to do. So well, I want to work with animals. I saw in the paper, as you know, you looked in the paper back then, in South Carolina, there was a job opening at Riverbank Zoo in Columbia for a horticulturalist part-time. And I thought, well, I don't know anything about that. But my girlfriend was down there. I just moved down without a job. I moved in with my old college roommate, my girlfriend. She lived in Greenville, which was about an hour and a half away. I applied to this job at the zoo thinking, well, I'll get into the horticulture thing and then transfer over to the animal side of it. Somehow I got the job. I don't know why. 
we all have a starting point. I always think about that. They interviewed me. They were walking around. Can you tell me what that plan is? Looked at it and I scratched my head and I was like, oh boy, I started getting a little hot under my armpits. And I was like, ah, oh, I just don't know what it is. It turns out it was a can of. <laughs> That's how little I knew. Some reason they hired me. I did it for about a year. There was this kind of turning point. I was offered a job in the bird department as a bird keeper. That was my chance, right? To work on the animal side, and which is what I always loved growing up. But something happened. You know, they offered it to me and I was like, oh, there's just kind of something to this horticulture thing. Once I turned that down, I was full-time at this point. I really realized, you know what? I'm going to dedicate myself to this. I'm going to really learn about it. It became no longer just a job, but a true, true passion that has stayed with me and will always stay with me. And I feel so fortunate and so lucky to have had a career in public horticulture. What an amazing thing. I can't tell you how many times I talk to somebody and they say, if I could do it all over again, usually it's somebody that works in an office in a business setting. Mm -hmm. Like if I could do it all over again, I would do what you do. I would work in a garden, be in a beautiful place every day, get to talk to people. And I have these great, amazing coworkers and plants are always, always fascinating. You don't even know a 10th of it. So you always learn and always keeps your creative juices flowing. I love what I do. I really love it. Share with us a funny garden story. I don't know how funny it is, but when I worked at the zoo, they're kind of funny places to begin with. I don't know if you've ever worked at one or spent a lot of time at zoos, but they're sort of these places that are full of a whole cast of colorful characters. Zookeepers and people that work in zoos are just kind of colorful. Zoos are just kind of funny, fun places. You're working around animals too, which can lead to sort of unexpected things. And so we used to work in all the exhibits. One time we were working in the Galapagos tortoise exhibit. So these huge giant tortoises that they're really slow moving and they just kind of creak around the yard really slowly. And my coworker, we were there working and he, we were just kind of talking for a minute and all of a sudden he's like, oh, I heard him kind of like groan. And I look over and the tortoise, one of the males, which are the, you know, 400 pounds is on top of his foot. Luckily, he had steel-toed boots on. He literally could not pull his foot out of this tortoise. It wouldn't move. There we were in the tortoise yard with a giant tortoise on his foot. We could not get it off. We had to get the keeper to come out and coax the tortoise with like a carrot or I don't know, like celery or a carrot or something that they kind of like slowly moved off his foot. So always something like that with animals. We used to work in the alligator exhibits and in the winter, these huge, they were 10, 12, 14 feet long. There were two of them in this alligator exhibit. They would just be sitting on the bank, thermoregulating. They're not really moving a lot because it's winter, but they want that sun. We would just get in there with these alligators 10 feet away and the keeper would stand between us and the alligator. And it's like, all right. They knew what they were doing. The keeper was really great there. We weren't in any danger, but it was definitely one of those sort of <laughs> things that only happen at a zoo. Yeah. I guess you always are glancing back as you work. <laughs> oh yeah. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. In your professional career, who's been your biggest influencer? Pretty easy. I know this is going to sound sort of cheesy, but my mom, she was a CEO of a nonprofit for 30 years and nonprofit is in my blood, of course. We often follow what our parents are doing. And so she has been such a great person to ask for advice along the way, not so much about horticulture, but just about being a professional and managing. And then my dad too, he was uh, really the one who got me into the natural world, always taking us out into walking in the woods. And we had snakes when we were kids and, and all kinds of animals. And so he's really the one that kind of spiked our interest and really encouraged it. It's funny how what we take from our parents and how carry that with us our entire lives. And then beyond them, I think just everybody 
I've worked with can remember the first time I learned how to coil a hose. I was like 23. And this person was like, you don't know how to coil a hose? I was like, um, no, could you show me? <laughs> <laughs> the same person taught me how to water a container. Didn't know how. I remember saying, well, how do you know when it's had enough water? And they just looked at me and I was like, I don't know. You know, we all have a starting point. We all learn things for the first time. We're not inherently imbued with all this knowledge of how to do things. And so I, you know, I didn't know how to... <laughs> water a container. So yeah, I've had so many good co-workers that no matter what stage of my career have been really, really helpful in helping me learn so many new things. Even today, I learn from my co-workers all the time. What's your most valuable garden mistake? I think it is thinking that mistakes or failure were bad. Like early in my career, I thought, oh my gosh, this plant's dead. Or I create this <laughs> kind of hideous design. <laughs> um, but you know what? I think the mistake is not trying and being afraid of failure. I think in gardens, you have to fail to succeed. You have to fail to push the boundary, to push the envelope. If you're not trying new things, if you're just sort of doing what's been done and what's traditional and what is known, then you're not really advancing anything. And I think for me, especially, I want to feel like we're always trying something new. If something dies or if we plant in too much shade or if it gets a little aggressive, it's gardening, right? It's not brain surgery. We can always fix it. I think we have to make mistakes and, and fail to really be good gardeners. What have you recently learned about horticulture or gardening? One lesson I keep learning <laughs> is we grow plants that some people might call weedy or aggressive native plants that are pretty. But I think one lesson I keep forgetting is just how important it is to cut seed heads off of things in the fall because we don't cut our plants back, of course, because insects nest in the stems or birds eat the seeds and it's still used by wildlife all winter long. Plus it's beautiful, right? We don't cut things back until probably March. I think not cutting back those seed heads from things like snake root. And we have such fertile soil up here in Pennsylvania. It's like black gold. South Carolina, we had a lot of red clay or sandy loam, but here we have this black gold and these seeds that hit the ground, it's germinating. When you're dealing with native plants and people who are passionate about native plants, like our volunteers and staff, our designs can be sort of compromised because we have these things that seed in and people love them and they're like, well, I didn't want to pull it because it's native. So I think cutting the seeds heads off is a lesson that I keep relearning. I'd like for you to complete this statement. In my garden, I have. We have two really cool foxes right now. And, you know, with 42 acres, suburban kind of setting. We have these beautiful foxes. They have become, I would say, habituated to people. They're out in the middle of the day, hunting, walking the pathways. We've given one the name Louie. Actually, it was a, we had a young guest. He was maybe eight years old. Called him Louie, this fox, because he got close, you know, and he's like amazed. Oh my gosh, Louie. This fox is named as Louie to us too. These really beautiful foxes that are thriving in this garden, along with so many other beautiful birds. We love all our wildlife that we have, and I think that's what I would say our garden has, like really amazing and thriving wildlife. We do draw the line at deer. <laughs> we have a deer fence, so that's the one animal that will be destructive when you get in a garden. Yep, so that's the deer solution for you is a deer fence. Yeah, we didn't have one for the first several years. I'm driving in on the roads through the garden, and I look over, and I'm like, oh, that's a beautiful herd of deer. Look at the rack on that one. They're just sort of in there eating, <laughs> feeding. So we, we finally got a deer fence, which is about a mile long. It really did the trick. But it allows other animals to get in. So they crawl over it or under it, which is great. How about your personal garden? Tell us about that. You know, I wish I did have a personal garden. We've been living in an apartment up here. I have a small little yard 
It's a row house. It's got this little teeny side yard, but you'll be happy to know that I don't mow the grass all summer and I just let it grow. It's like a little mini meadow. <laughs> but in South Carolina, I had a house for about 18 years. That was before I had the native plant bug and we didn't really know about native plants as much 20 years ago. We were still cutting everything to the ground and planting all these roses. And I had a big palm collection there, like hardy palms and bamboo. And I loved all the subtropicals. And I still love all that stuff. And I would still grow it um, as long as it wasn't invasive or harmful. What did you learn from the garden last year that you're applying this next year? How unpredictable it is that we do and the the weather. So we had a huge summer drought. It was like two months and the staff, they were just hand watering because we don't have any irrigation. And so we'll take a water truck around or sometimes even just (laughs) watering cans. I think just realizing again that weather is unpredictable, part of the beauty of what we do, but it's also something to really pay attention to. Follow planting seasons. We plant all summer. (laughs) You know, maybe it's good to scale that back a little bit. What plant are you in love with this week? It is winter. I'm looking out at kind of gray skies in the northeast here. No leaves on the trees, but you know what? You get out in it all the time anyway because you need that. You know what I saw this week that is the coolest thing? Have you heard of the Circus canadensis zigzag? It's a new red bud from Plants Nouveau. Okay. We planted a couple this year, and we have some in the nursery now. And I saw it in the nursery now without any leaves. And it's this red bud, just like the name says. It is zigzag. The whole trunk, the branches, looks like a writing spider. Oh, yeah. You know how they have that zigzag in their web? That's what the trunk looks like. It's that zigzaggy, and it's the coolest thing. Can't believe that it's a plant that got released. You know, normally plants that are... (laughs) double flowered or showy in a different way. This is just an interesting and really, really kind of remarkable thing. And it's cool. If you have the chance to get one, it's a fun plant. Sounds like it. I'm going to keep my eye out for that. What are the future plans for Stonely? We still have a lot of work to do horticulturally in the garden. There are some really core areas that we have yet to get to. And I think that's what's really fun. If you ever come and visit, and I hope you do sometime, if you ever get up in this area, please come by. I'd love to walk around with you. Yeah, I would love to. You know, we have some great areas for some shade gardens. We're actually working on right now. This is kind of exciting to us. It's not a garden space, but it's only never had a nursery, but it had this old school greenhouse from 1835. So almost a hundred years old and, and it was an estate greenhouse. So it wasn't really made to produce plants. It was made to hold orchids or peace lilies that were used in the house. We're now in the process of planting a new nursery and greenhouse. We hope to start that next year. That's pretty exciting. We've taken this old greenhouse. It's a clunker, but I have an affection for it because it produces a lot of plants for us. It's it's rusted and it's amazing what you can do. You don't need the fanciest equipment. You don't need the best facilities, but it sure helps. (laughs) So, So we're looking forward to that project. I think for us, it's so rewarding being a new garden and having the community come in, growing our presence in the community and becoming more and more relevant to the people that we're serving. I think that's what's really fun and really rewarding and seeing people walking around and getting ideas about what they want to do in their own yard or just they just want to relax and maybe they're just having a hard day and they just need some healing from the garden. So whatever whatever somebody needs, we're, we're happy to be there for that service. Ethan, tell us how people might connect with you. They can find me at Stonely, a natural garden where I work, and our website is stonelygardens.org. We also have Facebook and Instagram. We're located in Villanova, Pennsylvania, just outside of Philadelphia, about 13 miles. The best way to connect is to come visit and see what we're all about. This has been Episode 91, Introducing Biodiversity to a Formal Garden with Ethan Kaufman on the Garden Question Podcast. Thank you, Ethan. You're awesome. The goal is that every episode is valuable and well worth your time. 
please generously share the Garden Question Podcast with your friends, relatives, and neighbors. Check out our website, thegardenquestion.com, for links, resources, and where you can listen to every episode again and again. You will not want to miss a weekly episode, so please subscribe to the Garden Question Podcast with Craig McManus on your favorite listening app. Keep on designing, building, and growing a smarter garden that works.